the pleasure of speaking with two event experts on the topic operations and risk management. Warwick Hall is New Zealand-based operational risk management specialist and the owner of Safety Net Consulting, which is an award-winning consultancy specialising in operational health, safety and risk management. Warwick has a very broad experience base ranging from community to world events. Having run his own, he is very aware of the inherent risks associated with festivals and events. Safety Net Consulting offer a range of services from safety audit conducting through to providing on-site safety management and full consultancy services training and development. They have a broad range of clients ranging from the International Six Day Enduro to Ironman New Zealand, Oceana Boxing, World Junior Motocross and Rugby World Cup. Joining Warwick is Anthony Vernon. Anthony is the business development manager for operational software company Blurter and Anthony is based in the US. Blurter is a simple, easy to use platform that helps you centralise your communication operations and safety processes, connecting your entire event team in one place. It allows events of any size and scale to manage risk, streamline delivery and increase engagement their event. Now let's chat to Warwick and Anthony. First of all, I thought just to get things rolling was just a bit of an introduction from each of you. So just to get a brief insight into the company, um, the services that you offer events, um, and also on a personal note, your experience working in festivals and events. All right, you can go first. Oh my God, mine's a little um, eclectic, I'm afraid to say, but but uh, 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 Safety Set Consulting, I run two companies, the other one, Section 646, is more specific to high-risk cross-dialects and stuff. So we'll just talk about Safety Set Consulting, which is an operational risk company that specialises in uh, festivals and events primarily. Uh, that's my background. My background, I've been all around the world working in festivals and events. Um, spent 10 years in local government, so got around the world and pitched for world events, brought them back, set them up, um, ran them. I've done everything in an event from moving the portaloos um, when they're unoccupied um, through to putting the event together holistically, dreaming up the plan, putting it all together and rolling it out on a day from small community to world events. So I've got a really sort of broad um, experience across pretty much every genre of event. And from that, developed um, an event specialised operational audit. Uh, they're all kind of like business people trying to event, uh, events and festival audit and it's kind of like the um you don't know what you don't know when it comes to an event so a business auditor can't audit an event because they have no idea what they're even looking for um or what the nuances or the um inherent risks are in running an event so i put this program together um and approached the ifea national festivals and events association the world body the mothership and um i run a joint venture with them around the world with the process and they also endorse it. So I've got the um, Royal Endorsement, and it's the only product that they endorse um, globally. It's probably the only product that exists anyway. So that's pretty much what I do. I deal in um, Operational Pacific. Um, I'm more the uh, at the coalface, um, sleeves rolled up kind of guy. I'm not interested in strategy. I don't have any, uh, don't get any joy out of strategic stuff. I'm more the down, uh, down and dirty. So that's pretty much Asian to Operational Risk, full stop. 
my background is actually always has always been in technology um and since i was at 13 or 14 my uh father has a software business back home in the uk and i've been around software since since that age so uh, we've very much focused on events specifically probably two and a half years nearly three years ago uh which and our product initially has been designed around a similar similar to warwick hence why we work together around operational risk so from a ip perspective we don't advise customers or clients on that that's not our bag we aren't event operational experts we are technology experts and that that's what we focus on so we use consultants like warwick um, and other parties to help facilitate those conversations so one of the issues with events is that they've got multiple parties and they're all contractors there's volunteers there's emergency services and a lot of them only turn up for a short period of time so when they turn up they're usually not well briefed maybe they only got an hour briefing time maybe two hours at the most and they're turning up to do a very serious job you know it's a high risk environment there's a lot of media coverage there it might be streamed live on tv and for people to make decisions becomes very problematic usually that's restricted to the maybe 10 15 20 25 people depending on the size of the event so what we've done is allowed to, those 25 people with the expert knowledge to transfer that knowledge in real time across the workforce so in specific scenarios people will know what to do and when to do it and a perfect example of that would be a weather evacuation how does a volunteer who's at the other end of an event know exactly what gate to leave, how they speak to the public, how they interact with the public and what they're responsible for, how are they meant to know that and from an hour's briefing. And then when it, if that does happen, it becomes very problematic. You can make this bad decisions um, without context. So we allow that context to be delivered to the right parties at the right time. And therefore, the, the consequences of that are you minimize the risk we don't prevent it, but we minimize the consequences of what that might mean for insurance, what that might mean for your brand, what that might mean for safety of the public and the safety of the team. And therefore your financial tolerance is mitigated. Um, you know, a payout on some of these issues could actually put a, an event out of business. But if you've got the robust infrastructure, like technology systems, like what we have, you'll protect yourself to a certain degree on what you would pay out or if your insurance would get cancelled, hopefully it wouldn't get cancelled in this case. And you just put yourself in a very, very resilient position. My background has always been in that um, scenario of helping events or in other cases, it was actually construction companies connect multiple parties to a central point to distribute information. So it's all about information share and how to deliver context. A lot of traditional methodologies such as radios, WhatsApp, text, phones are fantastic for speed but they lack context and context drives behavior and behavior drives outcomes what types of events are using the software at the moment anthony is there any trends or is it a bit of a mixed bag it's, there's certainly trends uh, we call it medium to high risk events across a complex geography mm. uh, usually uh, entails um, endurance sports events that run across multiple venues are three main categories. Uh, there's not too much that we'd set outside of that bag. So it might be a community event or a fair, but generally they're only, we only do that if they run across a complex geography. Mm. Yeah. So lack of visibility. You know, can you see the volunteers? Can a volunteer see you? Do they have to run to find somebody with a radio? If they do, that's a time delay. It might only be 10 seconds. 
10 seconds is a mass, mass, massive amount of time when you're in an event and things are moving and there's things going wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What about you, Warwick? What are some of your event clients? Um, gosh, mine are a bit diverse. I work with the um, Ironman group of events here in New Zealand as their on-site safety manager. So um, the auditing that I do, I run it as a three-stage. Stage one is a benchtop audit, and that's applicable to any event anywhere in the world. And um, it's all done online. So you put the operational systems through um, the meat grinder, if you will, and um, mm. see where they're at. Stage two is I'll come on site um, and I'll determine that what they've told me they are doing operationally on paper, they are in effect doing on the ground, so boots on the ground, to confirm they're actually um, uh, rolling the system out. And stage three is holistic safety management. So I'll come on pre-event and I'll work through the event and um, post-pack out and provide operational safety management and uh, risk management services in real time for them. So um, festivals and events, music concerts, um, sporting events, I've sort of Colloquially, we'll break them into sweeties and non-sweeties. And um, <laughs> in this country, certainly the non-sweeties are always um, putting their hand up for more funding because they tend to feel they're left out because we focus, as Australia does, heavily on sports, yeah. <laughs> as it were. So you're right across the board, right down to I've got um, events in America as well. And they're big on sort of um, historical events, um, parades and festivals and that side of things. Um, but here primarily sporting events because that's where people perceive the risk. Mm. But um, really it's it's across the board now. I mean, the risk exists in everything we do. It doesn't matter whether they're out on a bike or, or, or swimming, in, you know, completing the swim leg of a triathlon. The risk is there regardless of, of what the genre of event is. So mm. um, here in particular, and um, I would suggest it's the same in Australia because um, our health and safety legislation basically copied yours. Um, in 2015, they copied cut and rolled it out here. And so here, more and more, um, the focus is coming on events with our, our regulatory um, organisation and also with our local and central government entities because they've found that um, 90% of the events in this country roll across local government sort of real estate, if you like, so indoor venues, outdoor parks, et cetera, roads, um, lakes, what is that sort of thing? And the councils, the upper level of council management now has culpability if an event's found wanting, somebody gets hurt or killed. So more and more councils are now turning to their event portfolios and as a part of their um, application process, they have to go through audit um, and be signed off as a safe event before a council mm. will even accept them um, in, into a region now. So yeah, the um, the um, landscape certainly changing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think we'll talk more about that. All right. So my next question was more focused on the Blurter software, Anthony. Just to give you an opportunity to um, tell us a little bit more about how it works, and I guess for me, getting a clear understanding of how it does improve, you know, efficiencies for um, events. So Blurter platform is is that it's a platform a lot of people misinterpret it as an app only but it's a platform and what that means is it it works across multiple devices and all devices depending on what you're using um, a lot of events don't have a command center but some do and we allow that flexibility to take place but ultimately what it is is it's a unified communication tool to connect multiple parties so that information can be shared to the right parties at the right time 
during the delivery of an event. And what we mean by delivery is really from the moment you start engaging contractors in, in communication, which might be six weeks out or it might be three months out, depending on the size of the event, right to the moment someone steps off for pack out. So the majority of events, uh, injuries, maybe not the risk, but the injuries take place in pack out and pack in just due to well, pack out usually fatigue and pack in due to high risk job. And what we do from an efficiency standpoint is a lot of these events are still using spreadsheets. They're still sending out emails individually to contractors about, have you done this? Have you done that? Have you sent me this document? And then once they allocate their jobs to all the contractors, they then make about 30 or 40 phone calls and they just keep going on the phone and on the phone and on the phone. Have you done this? Have you done that? And often they might have to then actually physically go to the site to make sure that it has been done um, and somehow collate all of that data from an administration perspective. So what we do is allow you to digitize that process. So we don't advise on the process. That's people like Warwick and the consultants that are wrapped around the event, but to digitize that process and make the information share, shareable and digestible in a way that an events operational person can basically sit in their office and again, by ensuring that people have got the right jobs, they've got the right tools, they've got the right information. And then the receiver of that information can communicate back to the event operational team. We, I've done this job. I couldn't complete this job because I didn't have the right tools. And then it just opens up those um, communication lines in a, in a way that um, is way more efficient than making all these 30 phone calls. So you can reduce your phone call um, output. You can reduce the amount of spreadsheets that you need to do. And because it's all being digitized, it's basically creating the majority of your logging data, your reporting data, um, and all of that information that you would traditionally hand over to someone like Warwick for an audit. So you're actually doing it right as you're managing it, you're actually producing the data at the same time rather than after the fact. So when it comes to event day, a lot of events will still communicate via radio. Okay, but not everyone has a radio. So a volunteer might be the closest witness to a scenario. How do they, what efficient way to deal with the scenario with, uh, regardless of the communication methods, which is basically a direct line from whoever <laughs> sees to getting the message to the right resource. So that's what we do. An athlete falls over, a volunteer can quickly communicate that to the right resource. The right resource can then geolocate exactly where it's taken place and um, go out and sort out the scenario mm. with correct information. So we will pre-populate um, scenarios of what to do in that particular that particular scenario versus uh, weather evacuation versus a fill in the aid station with more water. You know, it's a, it's a minor issue, but it is a, it, there's inherent risk in that, obviously with athletes getting dehydrated. So each one of those scenarios has different process and we can activate each of those in real time uh, from the moment it's communicated from a volunteer to the moment that it's dealt with by resource. So you're actually creating efficiencies right from the, from the logging of it, the reporting of it, the handling of it, and the communication of it all from one communication. And it might be the most basic thing. A volunteer might say, athlete 506 fell over. That's it. But what you, what the receiver gets is athlete 506 fell over, the exact location, the name of the volunteer, the time it happened and the date it happened. And that's the basis for all your reporting post event. And then the response to that again is being calculated and um, how quick you're responding and everything is um, around that as well. So that's probably um, in a nutshell what we do from the moment pack in starts, the moment pack out finishes.
Would you add anything to that, Warwick, in terms of your experience with um, the platform? Well, all I can say to you is that um, it's a brilliant platform, so much so that myself and Anthony and um, a third um, entity, Chanel Barrett from SB Events, we've uh, joined forces and, and um, wherever I go um, with with my services, Blurred is always included in, um, in any pitch, if you like, in terms of what an event should have on board because it's just... You know what you can do on the ground is one thing, but this platform elevates your safety and your management of those risks and your efficiencies. Um, so much so that uh, yeah, I believe in it completely. And I know we've got councils now here, uh, particularly where I am in Taupo, that are, are really embracing it and starting to bring it on board um, right across all the major events. So yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it works hand in glove with um, the services that I provide and the services that Chanel provides. So um, Chanel writes systems for, for events. Yeah, excellent. It's making me think of Gold Coast, actually. They would really benefit from something like this, you know, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, where they do a lot of, you know, outdoor sport adventure type events. Mm -hmm. um, and the one organisation runs multiple events. So I think, anyway, I'm, we can talk more about, you know, in terms of how we distribute information on it at a later stage. But I think there's a lot of scope for it um, just in, a, in events that I'm you know, thinking of at the moment. Um, so my next question's for either of you to jump in on. So um, effectively managing operations and risk is about more than just health and safety of attendees. You know, can you give us an outline of what you consider when looking at operations and a risk? And just to give a bit of context to that, I find when um, I'm not a specialist in risk management, but I look at events more holistically and I do more of that strategy side that you mm. don't enjoy, Warwick. But <laughs> operations and risk is important and I've, same as you, I've been there and managed festivals myself. But what I find is a lot of um, festivals and events these days, as soon as you talk about risk, they just automatically think, you know, health and safety of event attendees because I guess that's probably one of the most significant things to consider. But, you know, there's other things like, you know, reputation and brand and, you know, a whole range mm -hmm. of other things to consider. <clears throat> Yeah, so I'm just interested, you know, you talk about you, Warwick, do the, your audit. I'd be really interested to understand what are those different aspects that you look at when you look at an event from a risk point of view. Gee, that's a huge um, topic. For me, first and foremost, I think would be, again, to put some context around it, the, uh, the thing that will shut you down the quickest or get you into trouble the quickest will be risk to the public, which you've um, already mentioned. So mm -hmm. the, um, the authorities, if they see risk or there's perceived risk that's not managed, um, that's the one that will get you into trouble the quickest, obviously. Um, when I'm doing an audit, I also address the legislative side of it, because again, you, you've referenced that, and that um, sort of the two aspects to the operational, the risk management are a real-time risk management, actually managing the risks, identifying, managing, documenting, putting those processes in place, um, and B, it's, it's satisfying the legislative requirements um, that you have to, you know, and there's, that's two different elements completely, I, I think, in terms of it. So, and whenever I'm working with an event, because of my background, I kind of work a little bit differently. And it sounds a little scary, but I always say to myself, I'm standing in the dock with my client. Something really bad's happened at an event that's led us to the judicial process. Um, the judge is about to pass judgment. What could I have done right back at the beginning, pre that packing stage, with this event's operations, and what could the event have done better to alleviate what's about to happen at the wrong end of the scale. And then that's how I start my planning with an event. And I think you've kind of almost got to do it that way. 
but um, you know, the, hot, the hot points for us are your contingency plans, first and foremost. You know, everything's, everything's got to be documented, um, and then we've got to do the so what's and the what ifs. What if this happens? What if there's a motor accident on that course? What if um, it's too rough to swim? Uh, what if there's a major power outage? What if there's a, what if there's a terrorist attack? Um, and then putting all the plans in place to respond to those situations effectively and efficiently. And then in certain situations, doing tabletop scenarios or real-time practicing all of those plans to ensure that you've got a team on the ground dedicated efficiently to, to, to the operational lists. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Breaking down the categories would take all day. <laughs> but it's, it's bigger than just, um, you know, the risk to public, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Definitely yeah. is. Yeah. And I guess from my point of view, because I do a lot of marketing as well, um, which is another area I specialise in, you know, we often look at the, you know, the brand and reputational impact and that often leads on. So if there is a major risk that's not managed well to the public safety, then often that has that bigger impact from a brand and reputational point of view for the event, which is, you know, can be a long-term disaster. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you only get, um, particularly a new event, you only get one, one crack at launching a new event and getting it onto the right platform from the get go. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. But I guess the other side of that too is, you know, a few years ago, it was somebody to, um, be madly passionate about whatever the event was and be great at, at producing an event. And that's what they needed to know. But now with the changes in legislation, they need to manage the risk around all those sort of industrial processes that might feed into the event. And you know, if it's a music concert, they, they, they need performance statements around living stages. Uh, they've got people working at heights, you know, swinging speaker stacks. They may have people working in confined spaces, running cables and doing bits and pieces. So these days, it's not enough just to be a, a really sharp event manager. You've got to understand all industrial practices and make sure that the people you're engaging into those practices are doing it as per legislation as well. So there's, uh, it's, I, I think, <laughs> The biggest risk we have in New Zealand with risk management at events is people, I think they make an assumption that running an event is about throw a few portalies over an at corner, sell some tickets, um, cross your fingers, the sun comes out and the job's right. And it's not, it's a profession. <laughs> and it's a very complex profession that involves a lot of people coming together to make sure it's right. So our biggest risk these days is people taking the whole process too too lightly and not understanding the inherent risks that come in behind it. And if they haven't got it right uh, and things go wrong, they've got no way of responding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And totally understand what you're saying. And like, I, I remember even five years ago talking to events about risk management. They're like, oh, it just takes so much time to do look at risk mm. management. You know, it, these days it's starting to change a little bit in Australia. And I'm not sure if you've heard some of the stuff that's been happening around music festivals in Australia, particularly New South Wales. So um, it's currently the legislation's currently being reviewed in New South Wales because there's been, oh, I think it was seven deaths at music festivals over the last few years um, from drugs. So it, there's a whole issue at the oh, moment. I'll, share, I'll send some articles to you. You'd probably be interested to have a look at it, actually. Um, it's, yeah, it's very interesting what's happening um, in New South Wales. And as a result of that, actually, a couple of significant music festivals have just cancelled this year because the, what they put, um, they basically put some other uh, regulatory requirements around music festivals in New South Wales as an interim solution, which was something like uh, they had to pay for 
a certain number of uniformed police officers to be at their event. So in addition to what they used to have, they had to increase it by so much percentage um, and they had to pay. Um, the event was responsible to pay for those um, police. So that for some events increased their expense from something like, let's just say $15,000 up to like $150,000 just to implement mm. that new regulatory requirement um, so, and the events are just like we can't do it and they were even one of them was only one month away from event day and had to pull the pin wow. so it's yeah really interesting what's happening in new south wales but i'll send you some stuff i'll send you both just a few articles on it it's um quite interesting and they're looking they're trying to scale events and this is causing a, a lot of backlash at the moment because what they're doing is trying to scale music festivals in particular. So based on their risk level um, and uh, it's based on how many numbers they get. But, it, you know, when you read the articles, it's a little bit sus because events like Byron Bay Blues Fest, it's been running for years and years and years, has certain numbers that still align with some of the other events that they're putting these heavier um, regulatory requirements on, but they're not putting it on Blues Fest in Byron. So yeah, mm. I was going to ask how they, um, yeah, how, how they, how what they're using to decide how many extra police need to be on the ground. But it's not just about numbers. It's about a, it's about the demographic that's attending. B, it's about you know if you've got sort of death metal screaming from the stage, you're probably going to have a lot more black t-shirts and a lot more drugs than the audience. Right. Audience, and if you if you're going to reinvigorate Fleetwood Mac and roll them out, you know? Yeah, so exactly. Numbers. Yeah. We have we've we've, um, we've put a system together here based on um uh, we, we put a and it took a lot of work. Chanel and I got together and I think Anthony was a part of that process as well, where we, we created a, a a risk a risk matrix across events. And um you go through and it covers all genre of events and and, and you tick yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and when you get to the bottom, you hit a button and it, and it spits out whether your event's sort of high risk, medium risk, or low risk. And again, it's there are so many variables, it was really hard to try and put something together that collected them all up, but there's environmental business, there's, there's alcohol versus no alcohol, and a million other factors that, that, cut, that come into it. Um, and, and at the end of the day, it gives you that risk rating, and then from that risk rating, councils are determining whether they want an event to have a benchtop audit, an on-site audit, or holistic safety management. So what we're doing here is we're kind of not taking it out of local government hands, but we're saying to them, you're, you're by virtue of you allowing an event to take place, you are um, implicitly um, stating that event is safe to operate. And if it's not, you will be held accountable. And if you are saying an event's safe, on what basis are you doing that? What's your background? What's your experience? Mm -hmm. Because in court, the first thing the prosecution is going to ask you is um so you know who are you to determine whether an event's safe to operate or not so we've put this system in place to try and manage that risk so um here you know with nash as a private security that the police um we can request a police presence and if they're busy they don't turn up fair enough they've got criminals to catch if they're not we'll have police rolling through some events do to get a kind of presence um but we don't we don't pay for that presence but about four years ago, the government of the day had a crack at changing that legislation, and it would have been, yet yeah, if you want um, police at events, you have to pay. Mm. Um, we managed to head that off at the past as a as a national event board, and it hasn't uh, read its head again yet. But that posed a whole lot of questions around. Okay, so if that comes in, who determines what the hourly rate is per constable? Who determines what the ratio is back to your original sort of um, comment? 
you know, it's just not about numbers. It's, mm. it's a pretty tricky formula to work out what you need on the ground to to mm. make it safe. And, and, and really having uniforms on the ground, is that going to make any difference to drug consumption? Mm. Exactly. Uh, it's political appeasement, really. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah that risk, risk matrix sounds interesting. And particularly, I, I do a bit of work with local government more from a regional event strategy point of view. So looking at, you know, if they want to look at event acquisition, what's their framework around assessing what events they want to attract? And a lot of these councils mm. don't even consider risk. So they'll think about, um, you know, when they're thinking about the types of events they want, they're looking at, you know, the highest yielding visitors, alignment to their brand, um, you know, the events that suit the infrastructure that they have. So they've kind of got a bit of a framework around how they determine what types of events to attract, how much media coverage it gets them. But, you know, no council I've ever worked with has had risk within their assessment framework in terms wow. of looking at, looking at, you know, what what's the risk associated with events and really they should be assessing all events um mm. with that in mind absolutely absolutely and it's basically i think what you put this to me before about it's like a an electrician or a plumber signing off somebody else's work and they mm. to see if they would comply or uh do a job that's in line with their standards that, it, the councils are meant to be leading the way in terms of expertise and setting the standard for private companies to come on and use their land and their venues. Mm. But if they can't even determine what a good event looks like based on risk factors, then how is the private company meant to, to determine that? You know, it's mm. it's gonna be at their expense and their cost. And for the smaller guys, they can't they can't feasibly do it. So somebody has to do it. Mm. Um, I know here in New Zealand I've had numerous conversations with councils, um I'll not name them but large councils and sometimes they don't even know what events are going on on their on their land their public venue so when they get complaints from the public or they get phone calls from the public their their customer uh, service team their events team don't can't answer any questions related to the event that's going on and, and being carried out it could be like young kids cycling down a hill or flying around the corners i mean it's to be honest it's pretty loose <laughs> let's just put it like that and what's going on a minute uh, we operate in the U.S. and it's not too dissimilar. And you, I would, ex I was um, expecting going into that market to be it massively different because of obviously the, <laughs> the litigious nature of the U.S. Everyone's suing everybody, but they're uh, they don't have any factors of what they consider um, when calculating the, uh, the feasibility of an event. In fact, they're just so low of an entry point; they don't even consider. Any of the things that you mentioned, Linda, around uh, cultural uh, alignment, brand alignment—they nah. don't consider that. They because I don't know, I don't know why, but they just don't. All the only boxes they have to tick in the US are does it comply, and the compliance let, uh, regulations are so low that they probably say yes to ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of events that come through. Oh it's good. They're miles behind where, where Australia, New Zealand are operating, UK. Um, Canada's a whole lot further ahead than the States, but it's, it's, it's honestly, it's mind blowing when you go over there. And, and in terms of risk, you know, they are so, you know, you know, if you want to make $5,000 trip over an event and, and the event manager will write your cash check there and then to get rid of you. It's that simple. Uh, um, it, you know, I've worked with them over there and done presentations and, and the difference we've got here is, 
if we prosecuted on, and sorry to go back to that side of it, but it just it sums up the risk. People take risks seriously here because if you do get it wrong, A, there's the human cost, which is something in presentations as well because people forget about that. You just hurt somebody. <laughs> um, but B, it's, 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 if you are found wanting, you are fined and as villain. Um, it comes out of your back pocket. It's written into legislation. Insurance cannot cover um, fines that are levied against you under health and safety legislation. In America, it's not written in, and they focus more on making sure they've got sufficient punitive insurance in place rather than making the event safe. <laughs> and I've run presentations where I've thrown them all out of the room. I said, hypothetically, you're going to leave the room now. There's a table out front. Empty your pockets of your insurance policies. Then come back here and sit down without any insurance, and we're going to have another discussion about your inherent risks. And all of a sudden, the room goes white. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. America is a funny yes. place. Wow. Yep. Hey, can I just ask, I'm interested in your thoughts on, um, you know, we, I've worked with a few events, sporting events, some of them have had horses involved. Um, and often when you work with those events, there's a bit of a fear amongst the organising um, body that if we get a professional in to help us with risk management, they're going to shut our event down or they're going to significantly significantly impact on the event experience because they're going to put so much you know red tape around everything what's your thoughts on that well, i wrote the safety plans for one of the biggest um equestrian events in new zealand so um, yeah it's yeah yeah that's a long story we won't get into yeah well it's a misconception and it goes back to having the right people on the ground doing the work for them and again um the best thing they could do in New Zealand is, is regulate it and throw anyone out that isn't qualified to do what they're doing. Because we're getting people coming in and they don't apply any common sense. I mean, let's use a question. I mean, an inherent part of an equestrian event is horses. And horses come with inherent risks. And that's fine. That's not a problem. You manage those risks. You don't manage those risks by removing the horses from your equestrian event. Um, and that's the problem we see. People uh, um, come in and they make these broad brushstroke statements. Um, or, or they change things for the sake of change because they're trying to uh, justify their existence rather than looking at it and going, well, okay, mm, okay, we've got a show jumping event today and, you know, people can fall off horses. That's fine. That's part of riding the horse, you know, falling off or uh, entanglement. So, you know, we're going to manage that risk by making sure our medical elements are on site and they're ready to go and they're appropriately equipped um, and appropriately trained to respond if anyone does fall um, you know, steeplechase, maybe we're going to have a vet. So if we've got to do anything with an injured horse, we can take care of that quickly. It's about managing the risk at the appropriate le level, not stopping the event, mm. you know. And, yeah, and that's, uh, it annoys me that people that come in with that approach and just, you know, hey, risk is good. And let's be honest, perceived risk, actual risk, a lot of the things, if it wasn't there, people just wouldn't bother with turning out and having a crack, would they? That's part of the reason people do, do these things. Yeah. yeah, I guess you yeah. know I live. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it goes back to the perceived way people view the even just the terminology risk management and what it usually is associated with that. But risk is a way of calculating the feasibility of your event and what it's going to entail. So you can use risk as a way of driving better experience. For example, I know of a couple of events that use a risk framework for determining how long their event's going to last. If it it's two days or a week because you no know, competition is a risk, you know, risk uh, from big from big business and how that will impact the experience. So they use the risk-based framework to calculate, actually, we're probably best re reducing this down to a two-day event because there's 20 other events going on at once 
and therefore we might actually attract more visitors because it's not as uh, heavy for the family to invest in. They don't have to spend a week at the event. We can get a, a lot more people in one place at one time. So you can use risk to calculate a way of uh, delivering a better experience for improving your business. And as work said about managing the risk, you know, you can't prevent all risk unless you turn it into a, a NASA space program or a, a mass like an airport. You know, it, um, there is th going to be things that happen and it comes down to uh, work calls it managing risk and maybe in our language and technology, we call it your resilience to handle risk. You know, what is the tolerance of this organization to handle inherent risks? One might be your financial tolerance. Okay, if we have to pay something out, how much money can we afford to pay out without putting the whole company out of business? And how can we minimize the consequences associated with things that may go wrong or can go wrong based on the type of event that you're doing? So risk, maybe it's a terminology thing. It could be a cultural awareness, certainly an educational piece, but I think mm. the experts and people like us can take on as a, as a task to increase the awareness of high risk management is actually a good thing for development strategy, development feasibility, development brands, um, and anything that goes along with that. Nice. Good. I've got a couple of more specific questions. And these are things that um, I just wanted to raise because they're questions that I get asked a lot. And I'm interested in your thoughts. And, and this, I'm not sure if there's differences um, across our countries, but I know here in Australia, we have different insurance that is classified as similar to workers' compensation, which you can you can get for your volunteers for your event. So if a volunteer injures themselves at your event, essentially they get covered by a workers' compensation type insurance. Um, some people say that every event should have it. Others say it's a bit of a luxury item for volunteers at an event to know that they've got that kind of cover. Have you ever heard of anything like that um, where you are and do you have any thoughts on it? Um, here, here, everyone's covered by ACC, the Accident Compensation Commission. So um, regardless if, if, you know, it's on a sports field, if it's at an event, working, not working, um, they're, they're covered up to 80% of their normal income if they have to go off work. Yeah, so it doesn't really apply. I mean, you can get insurance anything you want, but here um, that, that, that insurance doesn't really exist because ACC covers it right across the board. People don't have to take it out. Um, people do take the additional, um, they'll, they'll take out insurance, personal insurance themselves. So if they can't work, um, the insurance policy they have will pay the additional 20% that the government doesn't pay to top them up to a normal sort of income levels. But here, no, no, it's not, not something that features. Everybody is covered by that ACC. Yeah. All residents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's. With a Labor government. So does that cover things as well? Like, so for you, um, self-employed, Warwick, we also have like, you know, income protection insurance and stuff in mm. Australia. Does that cover that? So if you, as a being self-employed, if you injure yourself and can't work for a period of time, does that help cover yeah. you? Oh, my I, God. Yeah. Uh, but, but the problem with me is how they determine what the 80% is of what I've earned. Mm. They normally go back um, to sort of, I think it's three or four weeks of earnings and then they do the calculation. We see um, we see a lot of people going off injured after um, sort of, you know, like a big industrial shutdowns here of the industrial plants where they're working 12 or 14 hour shifts because the plant shut down for two weeks to get all the maintenance done. So all of a sudden in that period, they're making twice their normal income. And then yeah. as, soon as, the, as soon as the shut's finished, people are miraculously developing small backs 
going off work and the 80% they're now getting from the government is 120% more than what they used to get anyway. So, yeah, so there's a few people oh, work the system, but uh, um, yeah, no, nah, it's not an issue here. Oh. Yeah. Sorry, go, Anthony. It's not an issue here in the US. Uh, we've, we've only started we've only started doing business in the US in the last few months, or my knowledge isn't 100% up to scratch on it. But the way things happen there is that you know, everyone knows that you have to carry, carry some sort of health insurance or personal insurance for pretty much everything you do in the US. There's insurance for everything. Um, now, what the government has tried to do and certain states have tried to do for for for-profit organizations only is that you have to pay volunteers so that they're classified as workers and not volunteers, which has a massive impact on a lot of the way, obviously, events are put on, um, how they pay. Yeah. A lot of events in the U.S. are now foundations are not-for-profits because then it's not a for-profit um, entity and they can... I still think get away with the traditional volunteer model. Um, but a lot of volunteer organizations are sorry, a lot of events that are for profit on sort of payment method, um, to, um, get a volunteer. Now it's obviously very complicated state to state, federal versus state. There's and all the insurance policies that go with that. Um, if something does happen, what's, how is someone classified as a worker versus a volunteer? It's very complicated. Um, but still that's a problem. The fact that it's complicated is an issue, not a benefit. <laughs> we should be really simple. Um, and quite clear, but the nature of the U.S. is it's that, that's just what the U.S. market's like, unfortunately. Um, and that will present complications so much so that uh, I'll give you an example: the Las Vegas and the Boston shootings, or the Boston bomb. Not insurance didn't pay out to anyone um, or to the organizations under any terrorism insurance because by the law it wasn't uh, technically terrorism; it just didn't meet the criteria. Um, a lot of the uh, medical insurance. Companies didn't pay out for the people at Las Vegas shooting um, due to numerous loopholes. Um, there's people left with massive bills. The, comp- the private companies weren't liable for it because, um, and their insurance companies wouldn't pay out. So there's people actually injured, people who were shot or stumbled uh, over, actually ended up having to pay huge medical bills. Um, and that's where the complications arise and who foots the bill, who's responsible. And those uh, lawsuits can go on for seven, eight, nine, maybe up to 10 years. Mm. That's horrible. Yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty crazy up in the up, up in the, the US of A. That's mm. an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, um, the last twelve months, there's been no Secret Service has just put out maps, mass mass attacks in public spaces. They put out a document every twelve months, and they document all the attacks that have taken place, um, and and put all the demographics around it because you know they're the protection people. It helps them um, increase their ability to protect um, VIPs. IPPs, etc. But uh, the last 12 months, um, all mass attacks have been um, committed by uh, domestics, not, not out of state actors. So there's no definitive definition, international definition that's agreed to of what a, a terrorist act is, but it generally mentions out of state actors. In America now, it's all homegrown extremism. They're all, they're all citizens committing these crimes. So yeah, it falls outside the, yeah, falls outside the definition. Oh, that's horrible to have to mm. deal with that. Now, I'm interested to talk about third-party vendors, contractors, service providers. You know, you've talked about it a bit, Anthony, in terms of, you know, the Blurter platform is about that communication channel for all of those people involved within the event. But obviously, you know, when you're bringing third-party people in, whether they're, you know, amusement rides, performers, entertainers, stallholders, you know, we've all seen the horrific um, examples 
but how how do you manage risk around third party providers? Is there a simple answer to that? There is there is a simple answer to that, and even here our national events body is trying to ignore it. So, and your legislation it, it's in your legislation as well. So the primary contractor or the primary organisation here we call it a PCBU, the company that's engaging the contractors or the service providers. If you're engaging anybody to provide a product or a service, you have a legal obligation to ensure that person you're engaging is operating functional, um, compliant health and safety across whatever product or service they're providing. Um, if you fail to do so and something goes wrong, they're in court and you're in court. So here um, we run a pre-qualification process. So let's just dump all those people, whether they're bouncy castles or merry-go-round rides or um, food vendors, whatever it might be, the guys that are rigging the stage, the sound, the lighting, the portaloo provider, the fence provider, uh, we put them through a structured contractor pre-qualification process that determines that they're operating compliant health and safety. I run a system myself. Um, I've got about 100 contractors online now that um, go through and I determine whether they've got functional health and safety. And that's including the events got a bouncy castle coming, what we call them um, LBIs, land-based inflatables, and there's a whole piece of legislation around what they need to have. So um, one of those people come through, then I delve into that legislation and make sure that that bouncy castle is compliant um, and everything they're doing around that is, is best practice to ensure it's safe as possible and the damn thing's pegged down. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so that should be... They should be put through a formal process to determine that the operating safety prior to being engaged and uh, are put to work. Statistically, your risk elevates 60% if you engage in subs and you perform tasks. Yeah. yeah, and I think the important message for me, as obvious as it may sound, is it's actually the event organiser's responsibility. You know, it's, it not about, it's not about pushing the buck and say, well, if we're paying them to come to our event, it's their responsibility to make sure that they manage risk. It's actually the event organizers responsibility the buck stops with the person that's engaging that product or service mm. that's that's definitive your legislation is identical to ours yep mm. and most most events don't put any of their contractors through um any process at all to determine whether they're safe to operate or not and you see horrific things going on on sites and the other thing that happens within that model is what we call second tier contracting where you might engage um, Acme Scaffolding, who are a fantastic company to complete your scaffolding um, for your spectator seating, whatever it might be. Um, but unfortunately, Acme Scaffolding are quite big on surfing and the waves are pretty good down at, down at the Gold Coast today. So they've all gone surfing and they've paid some half-high, unqualified company, half what they were getting to come in and perform that job for you and you don't even know they're on site if you haven't got some mechanism in place to catch that, which is where the pre-qualification process comes in. So we, we have events that engaged contractors, those contractors aren't even on site, they're not interested in being on site, they've just paid somebody minimum wage to go on and do the work for them with no qualification, skills or experience. So your risk is huge if you're not addressing those those contractors, those providers, yeah, you're asking for trouble. Mm. <laughs> and I think it goes back to, the, as you said, the event organisers, I mean, there's, it ha I mean, it happens in every industry, but a lot of, let's call them not best practice event organisers, undercut other event organizers when they're pricing for tenders is when it gets really problematic because then they, they have to push the cost down down through the second tiers and that's when you get people who aren't best practice they're not complying and they're uh, the risk increases as, as you push that down good event organizers will bid with the correct amount of uh, money uh, with best quality um, and therefore they should be in a better position 
to obviously distribute that cost, put them through a strict pre-qualification process and then manage that um, process end to end much more effectively. I mean, it happens in construction, you know, people under, you know, bidding on costs that they, they know is not feasible and then trying to somehow get out of it and distribute the cost down and squeeze. And then that's when you get things going wrong at the bottom end. But like Warwick said, second tier contractors come on site on unqualified. You know, it might be someone who's in the country for 68 weeks just looking for a for a job to get some, get some cash in hand, their money, and then they're all the time. It's really risky. From where Blurter plays a role in that is basically streamlining the process and matching the data that um, Warwick or some sort of process is captured around pre-qual. So actually managing the process of who's on my site, who's not, have looking at their qualifications, do they match up to the what they said at the start of the process, um, who is on right now if they, if something does go wrong and making sure that they can report on it in a way that actually matches what they said they were going to do at the start. Mm, excellent. What about um, insurance? So we've talked about a little bit about insurance and this obviously differs as well between countries and states. Um, do you have any like minimum requirements that events should hold in terms of um, their insurance or is it just kind of fairly open? Uh, I, I work with a partner, so it's not my area of expertise and that's what we bring in an external partner to basically calculate their inherent risks of what the, um, based on what the event's doing um, and, then, and then write a policy, underwrite that policy and pass it out to a broker for them to insure that event uh, based on the risk factor. So it's pretty similar in terms of process for what Warwick and would, would do, but it's just in relation to the insurance provided. The insure, the market in New Zealand is very, it's uncompetitive um, and it's not very specialist from an insurance perspective. So you've got a lot of generalist brokers insuring events with absolutely no expertise in what goes on at an event. So you've got a lot of events who are insured, yes. But when it come, if they did have to pay out or something did go wrong, the policy would probably be so broad and unspecific that it, it's probably not protecting them too well. Um, there's only one kind of special underwriter, sorry, in New Zealand, which is great for him and it's great for people who use him. But from a market and industry perspective, competition probably be a, be a bit um, a bit better for the whole industry because yeah, you've got a lot of brokers who are just insuring events because they see it as a niche to make money rather than um, actually giving them a policy which fits their needs. Mm. Yeah, when I when I when I audit insurance, insurance covers you know part of the audit process. I, I don't I don't. It's not for me to dictate whether they have the right amount of insurance, but um, I certainly look to um, six zeros on the you know the right side of the decimal point for any event. Um, if it was some minimal sum, then I would bounce it. But providing it's it looks in the ballpark, I, I don't make comment on whether it's sufficient or not. But what we will see going forward is, um, and a lot of big companies now do this, where they dictate that anybody they engage has to, these are the minimum levels of insurance. And we will see um, local government, they will start dictating, saying if you want to run your event in our town, we're going to manage, part of managing our risk is this is the minimum level of insurance and these are the policies you must have, um, otherwise you won't get your application approved to run your event um, across our parks, reserves, roads, etc. So the local government's going to start picking up that space because they are, with the, our new act, um, they're, they're an effective principle. Mm. So they, they've, they've got to be seen to be taking care of it. But um, yeah, America's a quagmire, isn't it, Anthony? Oh, I mean, I... I I run under the IFEAs, the International Bodies Insurance. So I couldn't afford to operate there. As a standalone, you need about fifteen different policies. Yeah, it's. 
it's in the nature of their market is just so complicated. Again, go back to my point earlier, it's just so complicated that it's not a benefit to anybody. Um, it needs better regulation mm-hmm. and federal and better what is covered by, and by what policies. Um, it's very confusing. Uh, and then you've got the constitution as well on top of the, all of these policies in the US, of, you know, the, the gun laws, um, first oh, right, state the, to state. Yeah, the state, uh, it's just, it is honestly a minefield. Um, there's no handle on, um, how to do this in the US. Uh, but it would require a complete change of the mindset of the entire country. Um, it is, it prides itself on being a very, what they call a capitalist, a very capitalist country where choice is the biggest number one indicator of freedom and how to make those choices. But the consequences of that are that everyone can produce something and it doesn't have to necessarily meet certain standards. And there's low quality products, high quality products, um, different states doing different things. There's the Fed or can't regulate anything really heavily. And then on top, um, get extended for nine, ten, eleven, twelve years. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a country full of lawyers. It's, it's everyone's suing everybody or trying to sue someone, and it's insane. Mm. The, um, the, yeah, the bigger high risk events there, the insurer will actually put their own safety managers on the ground to try and mitigate the risk. So the insurance company, your insurance company, will put people into your event on the ground to try and uh, push the risk down. And, and, wow. And, and, and mitigate it, yeah, to prevent paying out. Um, and that in itself creates problems over there because then the event says, well, okay, I've got safety managers, so I don't need to worry about that anymore. It's covered. And so, no, no. No, the only things that um, that, that person's managing, are, uh, if you go to your contract, the only things they're interested are in the, are the things that are listed down there that they've got to pay out for. Anything beyond what they've got to pay out for, that safety manager does not have any interest. I mean, Running mitigating their own risks, not the events. Yeah. I mean, one of the consequences of, no, it's not an industry-wide thing, but certainly happened in a lot of cases, and it goes back to the point you made at the very start, Linda, around people paying for extra resource. So whilst this wasn't mandated by the government or the, the federal, the, the Fed, um, it, in Las Vegas, when insurance didn't pay out, in a lot of cases, uh, medical, uh, indemnity insurance liability across all of those different like the venue volunteers all of those terrorism only some people got money and some people didn't so what events started to do across the country was panic because they and then they started to pull their insurance because they didn't feel as if they recovered um some kept it in there was new markets created for different policies which benefited a lot of the insurance providers but not the event and then instead of and some events just pulled it all together. And instead of doing that, they insured themselves by increasing the resource of security, which cost them upwards, maybe 80, 90 grand. And the education on the, on the issue was so loose. There was no standard. There was no like, regulatory body. Um, and that's how people then started insuring their event. Just don't insure it and just increase your security resource. That, that blows my mind. And the reason it blows my mind is because I, I think of the US and I think of all the crazy events in the US. Yeah. You know, so you you think like you know Burning Man and all the crazy music festivals and stuff they have in the US, yet they mm. haven't they haven't got their shit together around how to actually manage any form of risk. That's scary. And the, they, the, they haven't got their shit together. <laughs> scale? You know, we're based in New Zealand and Australia is obviously a bigger market than here in New Zealand, but the scale of some of these events in the US are absolutely huge. Mm. Mm. I mean, there's a few that I deal with that get upwards of 70, 80, 90, 100, 150,000. And not one of those events is, are events that you've ever heard of. These are just 
medium to large events that happen every week in the US. Mm. And that is an enormous amount of people. So if anything goes wrong, I mean, the consequences are absolutely severe. I mean, really severe. Crazy. And you put that on top of their weather changes and all the different um, geographical issues they've got around fires and earthquakes and snow and wind. <laughs> it's, it's a crazy market. Good market for you. <laughs> That's good and bad, isn't it, Anthony? Yeah. We're talking risk to risk of immense and... Yeah, as you say, it goes wrong. You know, you can have your insurances in place to protect yourself over there, but um, you're going to be you're going to be bankrupt by the time it rolls through a ten or twelve year judicial process. You know? yeah. yeah. Wow. Another point I'm interested in getting your views on is what about um, non-profit events that are typically run by a board or a committee. Um, and I'm assuming you would have experienced events like that. We have a lot of those events in Australia. They might have, you know, a paid CEO or um, event or festival director, but usually run by a volunteer board um, or committee. There appears to be a bit of confusion around, you know, the, the liability of those boards and or committees. Do you have any thoughts on that in terms of, you know, what, what is their liability and what protection should they have in place to protect that? Warwick's probably better to answer this than me, but my yeah. probably that they're no different to any for-profit organisation as far as the Act goes and the legislation goes. So the same uh, governance and requirements apply to a not-for-profit as opposed to a for-profit. Uh, they should have the same processes, they should be operating with the same standards, you know, the risk doesn't go away just because you've got a not-for-profit title and you pay tax differently. Weather still is weather, you know, people can still get injured, all sorts of those things. The biggest risk from when we're dealing with those types of organizations is really the funding and the competition and how they pay for things and who they're funded by. They're very heavily externally funded. So the market risk for them is probably bigger than, not bigger, but it's certainly a big factor that they think about when they think of risk. Um, is their, their ex external sources of funding, mm. um, how, how they allocate that, how they spend it, can they get it? You know, a lot of these not-for-profits run an event year to year, but, but sometimes they don't know if the next event, the following year, go ahead, um, just purely based on whether they're going to get sponsorship or not, um, mm. which is one of their biggest risks. Mm. But if the event goes ahead, I don't know if you agree with me or not, Warwick, but same principles apply. They should be following as many, and if not all of the requirements that, a for-profit organization does they should be just from the human aspect of running an event and being being good human beings which is uh, you know you quite often have these discussions and 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 you have to pull people up and go you know hang on a minute just back it up a bit let's not look about responsibility let's just start with um the human cost of what you're doing because that's the most important part before we look at the rest of it um so events that can clearly you know your point about sponsorship events that can clearly demonstrate they're managing their risk um, that's a benefit to a sponsor because nobody wants to be aligned to um, bad media push if it turns to custard because you know you see these event headlines and it's not the event manager's name that goes up in headlights it's you know it's the um the acme international marathon the acme had nothing to do with what went wrong but it smears them but um here we've got we've got a health and safety at work act our specific legislation that sits in one space and then we've got um, and normal criminal stuff, so Crimes Act, Summary Offences Act, the two primary pieces of 
um, criminal legislation, if you like. So um, in terms of um, the board sort of managing their risk and their liability, culpability around it, responsibility, um, if the event doesn't engage anybody um, for any money whatsoever, so they don't have, uh, you know, the trust doesn't employ somebody afterwards, give them $10 to sweep the venue out, there's no one getting any money for doing anything whatsoever, then they fall outside our health and safety regulations, which is kind of a shame because then they rub their hands even and go, good, we don't have to worry about keeping people safe now. <laughs> but if, 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 if it all becomes academic and Australia will be the same, if, and it goes back to that, you know, that, that public risk, if regardless of whether you fall outside your, your, your specific legislation, if you're found negligent before the courts, the criminal mechanism is going to pick you up and prosecute you under your, your, your generic criminal legislation anyway. So they, they have a responsibility, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, they, and, and it's funny because you do get organisations that set themselves up in a certain way because they think it's going to absolve them of their responsibility. But yeah. um, I guess for us, you know, when the Act first launched, um, and it had several definitions around what is a volunteer, what isn't a volunteer, and, and people were trying to put volunteers into different categories because they thought if they did, they wouldn't have to look after them. <laughs> and, and my response to that is, why would you not want to look after somebody that's coming through the gate to your event in the first place? Why, why are you trying to absolve yourself of your, your, your human responsibility? Mm. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, uh, yeah. no, they have a responsibility. And, and if they're found wanting, some piece of legislation or another, we'll put them before the courts and get a result. Yeah. And it, it goes back to the question of, yeah, we can talk about it as risk management, but what, what makes a good event? A good event inherently should have factors of risk calculated, worked out, part of the strategic plan up front, because we know the outcomes are better for everybody, the experience is better, everyone's well prepped, they've got the context, or um, training's been delivered better, everyone knows what to do. Um, then the public safety risk will decrease just by the nature of, of those processes and therefore you should have a better event. Well, it's, that's what, that's, to me, that's what risk management is about. Like, how can we make the event a better event by managing the risk associated with it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess just in my experience, I, I agree. I think the way you just summed it up, Anthony, is excellent. I just... You know, some people are just still so blasé about it. And I don't know if it's because in Australia where we do um, still have that element of being a fairly safe country, um, although we see, you know, some activity and, you know, in our country but more abroad, um, we're still a little bit blasé about it all, you know. And, and I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, terrorism or, or massive risk, but we're still, particularly when you get into regional parts of Australia, we're just... Yeah, really blase about everything around managing risk. And, you know, the biggest concern a lot of events have is the time and money to do risk properly um, puts a lot of pressure on them. So it becomes this decision of can we afford to do it and do we have the time to do it well or do we just kind of cross our fingers and hope that, you know, we're going to have another safe and successful event. And that's you know, no joke, that's what a lot of them are, you know, considering because we just haven't had a massive incident enough to scare some of our events. Certainly councils are starting to look at events different. You know, when you when you talk about local government, you know, they obviously they pay a bit more attention to, um, you know, regulation and, 
um, you know, everything that they need to and they're starting to pay attention and there's slowly things being implemented. Um, but it's, I, I feel just from talking to you that, you know, a big percentage of events in Australia are not taking risk, risk management as serious as they should be. Mm. It's been such a criminal on the market that the way we even position our product from the outset to create a better conversation is we've removed the word risk from our uh, marketing um, mm -hmm. on just because it creates such a negative perception at the, at the outset. And we just mentioned that we're a, an event lifecycle management tool or an event operations tool. Mm -hmm. Now, when we get into conversations, obviously it becomes about risk and safety and process. But just to initiate the conversation and start it off in a much softer um, way, we've had to kind of reevaluate that positioning. And now it's, it's been a big, big benefit to us. But it just it shouldn't be like that. <laughs> um, mm. It should be a part of everyday culture, um, but unfortunately, it's not. Um, there's, and it goes back to the points that we've made throughout this call. And to me, it goes goes to two things that there's this safety work aspect, which is documentation, process, systems, actually doing the safety work, which is writing everything down, and then being safe at work. And there's a very a, a line between those two things because one thing has to be done in certain cases and it should be done for, for compliance reasons and then how does that translate to actually being safe on the day or when things ha happen those are two different things and a lot of people don't ever get access to this the, this process of these documentation especially volunteers who make up the majority of the workforce mm. <laughs> you know it's the most eyes and ears they're there to participate they're answering questions for the public the public are going to go to them if things go wrong and they, they haven't been involved in this process so um those two things there's a bit of a disconnect um that's not my thesis by the way it was somebody else's uh, but i just thought it was a really good analogy um, of, mm. um determining those two different things yeah you're right i mean i'm you know once again a lot of events that i've worked with over here volunteers if they're lucky get a one hour briefing you know prior to event uh, if they're lucky Sometimes it's just, you know, here, this is where you need to be this time. Here's your supervisor. Here's a shirt and a hat, maybe. Um, thank you so much for your help. That whole piece around briefing volunteers and having them part of that process, because you're right, the same with, you know, improving on an event experience and doing that post-event analysis work. It's talk to your volunteers. You know, they're the ones on the ground. They're the ones answering Absolutely. questions. They're talking to your event attendees. They're the ones that are just so critical to the success and the future of the event but many people just forget to even acknowledge them or take them as a serious part of the team you know it's it's like wow. they're just the labor there to make sure this event happens and they're not you know that, that might be being a bit harsh but that's kind of how i see it is the volunteers like we just need volunteers to help make this event run they're not considering it in advance or in a strategic point um, to mm. say, well, how do we get them engaged through this process and brief well so that they can deliver on a great experience, but also provide that feedback back to us to help us improve on our operations of the event? Yeah, you, you did right. It's kind of the um, from the um, from the Japanese management model where once a year the CEO has to go down and clean the workers' toilets. Yeah. You know, brings it back to ground level. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, you, you, you know, if you took, um, well, first of all, you know, volunteers really in this country, there aren't that many volunteers in the strictest 
the sort of definition of the word anymore. They're generally a, a sporting organisation or a community group that's turning up as a group, as volunteers to mm. work for the event and then the organisation or club gets in some form of recompense. But um, if you undervalue your volunteers, I think that's a, that's, that's, that's a, a fatal error. If, you, if we took volunteers out of the events um, in this country and everyone had to be paid a reasonable rate, there goes 95% of our events because they, financially they wouldn't function, they can't. So we talk a lot about volunteer burnout here and about valuing the event and um, the volunteers. And, 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 you know, it's great giving them a T-shirt and a cap, but really, you know, if we look at Iron Man, they go the extra step without, you know, because generally the bloody T-shirt you get doesn't fit. And let's be honest, it's generally a piece of crap that someone's churned out of China, you wash it once, and it's now a bike-cleaning rag. <laughs> you know, so, but Iron Man, you know, all of, you know, we've got, you know, upwards of 1,800, 2,000 volunteers now where um, the volunteers are asked what size, what size the T-shirt is. You know, because that's probably for the sponsored brands, it's cost money. You make a decent one, and if it's going to last, you know, um, you know, the fullness of time, then everyone's getting the benefits because they're all wearing them, um, and they get a shirt that fits rather than something that just fell. And I'm sorry, mate, you're a small girl and got three XL left. Um, you know, tie a knot in it or something, and off you go. You know, and by the way, here's your crappy sausage sizzle. You know, you've got to look after them. They're they're your lifeblood, and they are. They're the people on the ground. When I do on-site audits, um, I get around the volunteers, and, and I, they're the people I ask the questions because they're the people that are doing the work. You know, management, they're great, but it's the eyes and ears on the ground at the coalface that I'm interested in because they're the ones that, as Anthony, you said, you know, it might be the volunteer. They're the ones that are observing what's going on. They're the ones that might see things about to go wrong before anyone else does. You, you, you need to empower them, make sure they feel valued and their contribution, um, you know, is something that we want to hear and we're going to action. Mm. Yeah, it annoys me that volunteers are um, dismissed. Yeah. Oh, but, I'm you know, with it's the same here. Organizations yeah. that just think they're a crap t-shirts all they need and hang on a minute they're giving you a lot of time for nothing you actually want to look after them yeah and then they cry about volunteer burnout this is the same where we're hearing it over here and then they go nobody will volunteer at our event you know we can't get enough volunteers like well let's just take a step back and think about how you're actually managing your volunteers and that whole yeah. process um, and maybe if you created a fantastic experience for your volunteers where you empowered them and acknowledged them and, you know, made it a great experience for them, then, you know, perhaps you wouldn't be crying for volunteers every year. Yeah, exactly. Every, everyone's getting busier and busier and their, their, their discretionary time is getting smaller and smaller. So it's a competitive market. The, the, the government here, going back about eight years ago, um, on, I think it was on the heels of the, the one of the first World Cup, and they put together this volunteer organisation where they wanted all the all the volunteer people that wanted to volunteer for events around New Zealand to register onto a central site, and the events could go out to them and and, and try and get them to come and help. And, and and I was dead against it. I said no. I said Iron Man doesn't want to be putting their sixteen hundred events out to the rest of the world because. Iron Man wants to keep their events doing Iron Man events, not everyone else's. And the whole thing just, you know, it's it's fallen over and, and, and it doesn't exist because people tend to put their hands around, their arms around their events and try and keep them to themselves, their volunteers, because they don't want to lose them, you know. You might do 10, you know, volunteer at 10 Iron Man events and you want to go volunteer at some, someone else's event because you've had a, something flagged up on your on your internet to say, why don't you come work at the America's Cup this year instead of Iron Man? Well, then that leaves them short. So your volunteers is... It's a huge issue uh, um, here, yeah, yeah, particularly yeah. volunteer now. It's a big, big, big subject. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Back to, back to risk. Yeah. Yeah. 
all feeds into it. does. You haven't got enough people on the ground, you've got risk. Yeah. If you haven't empowered them to do things, you've got risk. You know, exactly where blurter fits is going back to those scenarios. If an athlete gets injured, if a volunteer has to go and run to find somebody, to tell somebody that somebody's injured, you know, there's somebody lying on the ground. That's time delay. That's 30 yeah. seconds, 40 seconds, which in a heart attack scenario or a very serious scenario, those are life-saving um, issues. So yeah. and we all seen it at the Gold Coast, the lead runner for the marathon. Oh. And volunteers were sitting looking at him because they had no way of communicating. So they had to wait for somebody with a radio, which took yeah. an extra minute, not live TV. You so, know, yeah. the things that there's, there's, there's your risk in one's, one shot of not empowering people to the right tools, the right systems, and recommendation systems that, that somebody should have been on site to help that athlete minutes before it actually happened. And that's that inherent risk again. Yeah, um, you you won't be judged for the fact that somebody's had a heart attack at your event. You'll be judged at how long it takes for the appropriate resource to get there and start administering care. Exactly. Exactly. Um, if your horse is fine, just make sure you've got a medic there to patch you up and put you back on. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, Anthony, with that. Um, point around volunteers and you know the lack of briefing for volunteers and you know you mentioned at the start about blurter being an information sharing tool and it's about bringing all those different key stakeholders of an event together um is that something it does as well in terms of supporting that briefing element for volunteers or ensuring that volunteers are you know more aware and engaged and informed before coming on site for the event Absolutely. So you can do that in two ways with our, with the system. Is one we have an API which plugs into another. So if they're using a volunteer management system, then we'll plug into the back of that and that streamline that process um, for distributing information. So a volunteer management system might be allow allow them to pick the time they want to come work, um, maybe pick the time the job that they want to do. But the next stage after that is how do they access the briefing documents? How do they access um, what time to come along to the events? Mm -hmm. Changed in that time, so we, that's the mechanism we can facilitate. If they don't have the luxury of that, then what we can do with our system is a lot. As long as they've got the app, the app downloaded on their phone before they they come, which they should do it with a good event, with good processes, um, they can access all the critical documentation. They can access all the critical safety information. They can access any changes that happen during that program, our first ever events that we ran. Um, they had to can. It was a triathlon. They had to cancel the swim two days before it started. That is a massive, massive change that impacts everything. Okay, normally they would have had to uh, send out an email, bulk bulk email it out, maybe with a link to a press release or a website. Emails get about ten percent open rate if you're lucky. Um, you've no way of tracking that. Some in cases. Um, so they had to, they used our system to push out the message in one go, what, three or four seconds. Everyone got it with the context. The reasons and as to, and what, what was happening to change the swim to a, a five kilometer run. So that's the process in a nutshell. What you can also do as well is once the, the volunteers can access the application is distribute the document in a way that's digital. So it's never lost. Um, as to when people check in and check out so that people are actually opening things and checking them. Um, you can have additional notes from the briefings for people who may have missed it so that it becomes a communication uh, process rather than just a tick in the box, some documenting this for the sake of documenting it. 
Excellent. Does it do, so from an operational point of view, you know, when you've got, obviously we've talked about how it's that information sharing, it's a communication tool, keeps everybody, everything in one central place. So I'm assuming, you know, it's this portal where you can access everything like site maps and contact details and, you know, quick access to emergency services. It's just this on your phone, you can quickly go into the app, get everything you need really simple in terms of all the areas of operating um, the event. Absolutely, 100%. That's a, that's, and it's in two scenarios. It's either with the information that's been developed in planning or it's with the latest information that's been changed on the fly because something in the, at the event's changed. So it provides context to both. You know, what's happened in our, the lead up to the event, you know, all the documents that the, the event organizer has produced with site maps and um, health and safety manuals, uh, run sheet schedule. But that's not to say that any of that information hasn't changed in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> um, so how do you get that information? So it manages both. Fantastic. I've got one final question for you. And this is something I ask everybody that I do case studies on is, it, this doesn't necessarily have to be related to risk or operations, but um, with your experience working with events, what would be your <laughs> Anthony's answer is going to be very easy. <laughs> what <laughs> what um, would be your one recommended event resource that um, events could benefit from? Anthony, <laughs> <laughs> not mention the, the I'll not mention the product by name, but a system, whether it's techno technological or traditional, has to facilitate the way information is shared in a much more dynamic way so that the multiple parties can get that in a much more what we call context specific or situational or in, a, or in situational awareness scenarios. As I said, a lot of the traditional methods, WhatsApp, SMS, text, phone calls, or radio provide verbal information or the, the, the basics, but it doesn't, it lacks context. So therefore you're increasing the, the time to respond. So any solution which helps bridge those gaps, I would recommend as a real critical point um, in any event. Mm. Oh, still I told, still I told. <laughs> he wrote the book. <laughs> Go talk to Bill, read his book. Yeah, I had a chat to him a few weeks ago, actually. He's really good to chat with. He was um, fantastic. I mean, and he's so willing to share, you know, mm. share his knowledge, um, experience, ideas. Uh, yeah, totally. I, I think that's a great suggestion, um, you know, reading his books. And he's so that's open. That's an answer. Does, yeah, yeah. And that feeds into a sort of part two is, does Australia have a cohesive national events association? I think yours turned to custard from memory because we were looking at coming in there with the world body and trying to get it back on its feet again, which is a shame. But um, that sharing point, I, I would be recommending to any event that's wanting to grow their knowledge or bounce off people and share. I mean, networking, you know, it's that um, being able to sort of bounce your successes, your failures, your challenges, your triumphs, your threats off other people and get how they do. Because, you know, you go to the world conference and you sit down, it doesn't matter what the accent is around the table everyone's challenges are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, and, and getting on board with IFEA.com, the International Festival Events Association, joining the association, the world body, 
every single member of the world body, if you've got a problem, you can pick up the phone and ring them, and they will talk to the information sharing. There's nobody holds the cards close. Everyone's got their everyone's got their top hand. It's on it's on the table and it's face up. You can see it. Everyone shares their, their experiences and, and their knowledge. It's honestly the resources. Uh, I push it here in New Zealand. You, you can. You know, you, you, you know, Anthony goes to conference now. We'll be having beer there, and um, where do we? Fredericks, Fredericks, something. Williams Virginia, Brown. anyway. I'll have yeah, to look that conference. up. Yeah, I agree. If you come across, you'll you'll you you will leave with your head full of great stuff. Really, it's such a good platform. Yeah, it's in September in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Yeah. Is it? I thought it was Williamsburg. Oh, Williamsburg. What am I saying? Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. I know it's Virginia. I would agree with Warwick on that massively. The resources available at IFEA are incredible. Um, it's a, a very, very open association to provide back to the industry. It's probably the best body, regardless of industry, I've ever ever encountered. Um, you turn up to that event and they know you by name. They know, um, they know what you do. They make introductions for you. They set up meetings. They endorse what you're trying to do. If it's best practice, they share that knowledge. Um, a lot of the same people turn up every year. You know, the people have been going for 15 years. Um, it's quite incredible. Um, it's great to be a part of. Um, really, really good organization. Great tips. Thank you. I would recommend anyone to join that organization. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to discuss? Um, for me, I guess I'd be saying a, a sort of couple of things. One is... It's not good enough to have uh, good operational systems on place to run an event. They've got to be documented. So everything, you know, <laughs> justice doesn't have to be done. It has to also have to be seen to be done, particularly if, you know, if things don't go right. And that sort of rolls back to, particularly, I mean, we here we sit with the small events. So they're great events. They run really well. But um, they're a mum and operation and all the information on how to run events sitting in somebody's head. So if you throw them under a bus, the event's buggered. Um, getting people to take all that good knowledge and years of experience out of their heads and put it on paper so we've got some, some business continuity with it, with it rolling forward. If something happens on the day, somebody can still pick it up and make it happen right. That's sort of a big gap that, that we see, mm. um, particularly with events. And um, I guess for you, your terrorism threat, you're um, in a much graver space than we are with that. You're throttling a lot more um, attacks um, annually than make the paper, I can tell you that much. <laughs> um, yeah, so just people here now starting to put events through sort of counter-terrorism awareness training. Just now the events of March 15th, so um, we've got people that are, um, again, feeling a little bit more empowered, a little bit more confident that, you know, see something, say something, so we can try and head mm. these things off um, before they happen rather than um, sort of afterwards, call it left the bang, right the bang, um, literally. Yeah, so, um, yeah, just some awareness around that, I think, is a good thing as well now. It's the world we live in. It's not going away. It's only going to get worse. So, um, yeah, some knowledge and um, implementing those sort of plans into event plans as well now. Sort of Las Vegas is a prime example. You know, Mr. Padden, he killed uh, 26 on site. And then the, um, the number that eventually died was 56. Um, some died in the streets. So, so they bled out afterwards. Others died in the yards. Others died, others died being transported. But um, it's having basic plans in place to deal with it. We're not talking about being, you know, the born identity, Jason Bourne type stuff. We're talking about if it does happen, you need to be able to continue to operate a, a public address system to point people in the right 
direction, giving the right guidance, which way to go and, and how to go. Um, I mean, here it's um, a real issue now. We, um, we talk about you know the things that used to keep us awake at night. Don't, we call them routine emergencies now. We've got high-risk emergencies, and the plans are different. And, and the routine emergency, if we have to evacuate a venue, um, everyone goes to the safe assembly point. Well, unfortunately, that's where I put my bomb. Because <laughs> the easiest way for me to get the people in the venue is to get them out of the venue because the security exists inside the fence, not outside. So we're now with events looking at lockdown procedures. We're looking at dispersal procedures. Um, so if a high-risk action does take place, we want people to run in all different directions, like rubber bands that loose out of a packet, not all glob up in one area where um, it's problems. And our legislation specifically talks about safe assembly points. So I've actually challenged them and talked to the national health and safety people and said, well, you know, I'm sorry, um, high-risk action, I'm advising my clients to disperse, not assemble, I want less deaths, not more. Um, you know, your legislation doesn't recognise that. And um, they're saying, you know, you're right, it doesn't. So, well, go sort it out, you know. Yeah. So just some basic content in your bigger events, around what to do and some, some knowledge around how, how to do it if it happens. Is, uh, one of the biggest things, the biggest common theme that rolls out of all these sort of mass attacks is um, there's no sort of guidance once it happens as to where to go or what to do. People are left to their own devices and it's, um, it's causing a lot more deaths. Yeah. You guys are far more in the spotlight than we are. That's kind of what we're trying to help solve. Is like yeah, we talked about that, you know, and um, Las Vegas, a prime example of the the minute it happened, everyone's on their damn phones. You see all the Facebook footage and texting, you know, so, you know, one argument is, you know, when that's happening, people aren't remotely interested, but they're all on their bloody phones. Um, and if at the time that happened, you know, lead singer left the stage, of course he's going to leave the stage. The lead was pouring into the stage. Um, if, you know, at that point that it happened, everyone got a, got a blurt that said, you know, uh, mass shooting, exit stage right, don't go left, you'll be under his guns. Um, we've got to save lives, we've got to save a couple of dozen lives, but um, no one knew what was happening. Um, there was no guidance given, so people were left to their own devices. And, you know, yeah, so something in there, some, we're not talking about high level stuff. A few sentences, a couple of paragraphs around dispersal and around if it happens, you've got to maintain the means to keep giving real time messaging to your audience or your participants as to what's happening and where to go and how to respond. Mm. Yeah, that's a big one. And it's just, it's going to get bigger. Okay, yeah. I mean, there's actually, a, I'll send you the report, Linda, the, there's a PDF report from FEMA on the Las Vegas scenario, uh, situation. And the number, they had 20 observations for improvements. Um, and I, I'm not saying FEMA are like the go-to perfect kind of examples, but their number one and two observations were there was a time delay in the communication from the point the incident started to the point that it was received by the main and most critical resources. So during their plans, um, I think Las Vegas Police Department weren't integrated into one piece of the communication network. So they got their, they got the message a minute, maybe two minutes too late. Um, there was another party which got the message a minute or two minutes too late and that, that puts a delay on things and in, in a, in a serious situation, five seconds is too long. God, I hope we never have to deal with that, but. It, it's well, yeah, and like you said, Warwick, it's knowledge, it's being prepared, it's understanding how to deal with it, and we're we're not ready. Mm. Oh, that's a lovely note to finish on, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might just go and meditate for ten minutes or something. <laughs> what a, what a <laughs> I'll have a strong coffee. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, well, look, thank you so much for your time. I'll, I definitely want to stay in touch. And, and it's really interesting for me as well to have that international context. You know, whilst, like one of you said before, um, we're all facing the same kind of challenges or issues, but, you know, there's often just different ways to look at them or um, differences based on our countries. Music